Welcome back to the story of I'm Reagan Snyder, and this is the story of Charles Manson, part two. Charlie got to Berkeley in April of 1967, and he ended up in this this neighborhood in San Francisco that was really popular at the time called the Haight-Ashbury, and it was the full-blown hippie era, era. and the Haight was where everybody was. It was the place to be. It was the center of it all, and you know, it's the 60s. It's free love. It's the summer of love. So we've got people who are sleeping around with everybody. There's everybody's doing drugs. LSD is legal. The hate was eventually run over, un- overrun with homeless people. And there, there were drug problems, a ton of crime and hunger and overcrowding. But for the time being, it was the place to be. And so that is where Charlie ended up. He had to, as soon as he got there, he had to look for work or at least show that he was actively looking for work for his parole. And his grand idea was to make money as a street musician or playing in clubs. He's like, I'm good. I'm the chosen one. I can do this. I'm going to make great money as a street musician. But as it turns out, everybody else there had the same idea. So that wasn't going to work. He's like, well, what am I going to do? In other cities, pimping might be an option, but I mean, it was, he was smack in the middle of the free love movement. So that's like selling ice in a snowstorm. And he was like, he was not down to be a busboy or a janitor again. And he's like, I'm a musician. I'm above that. I'm better than that. So I'm not going to do that. But he was going to have to figure something out. And he was going to have to figure it out fast because he had, he had a parole officer that he had to keep, keep happy. And then Mary Bruner came into the picture. Mary was 23 years old. She was from Wisconsin and she earned a BA and then she moved to Berkeley. And when she got to Berkeley, she got a job as an assistant librarian at Cal Berkeley. And she was pretty homely. She dressed very conservatively. I mean, she kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. It was a very, she was, her appearance was a very stark contrast to a lot of people in the area at the time. And Mary didn't have any friends in California yet. She just kind of worked and kept to herself. But then she met Charlie. And I don't know what he was doing at UC Berkeley, but Charlie was on campus and that's where he met Mary. She was out walking her dog and Charlie was like, oh, I love dogs. Oh, what's his name? Can I pet him? You know, making a fuss over, over the dog. And he had his guitar. He's like, he's one of those guys. You know the guy. Where they come to parties and they just pull their guitar out of their pocket and they just start singing for everybody playing and singing. And it's like, okay, thank you. Okay, please stop. And then it just goes on for the whole rest of the night. Charlie's one of those people. So he pulls his guitar out. He sings her some songs. They talked for a little bit and he worked it into the conversation that he didn't have anywhere to stay. And Mary's just eating this all up. She's like, well, you could stay with me. So she offered her apartment to him for a few nights. And he snatched the offer right up. And this temporary stay that he was supposed to be doing, it turned into a permanent stay. And they kind of fell into this routine where Mary worked and provided. 
and Charlie did whatever Charlie wanted to do. He roamed around with his guitar. And as he roamed around the city and the neighborhood, he would meet people. He was one of those people that was very social and charming, and he met a lot of people. And this led to him bringing other girls back to the apartment. And Mary didn't like it. She was like, what is this? I thought we were a thing. And he sweet-talked her out of it. And, you know, Mary was, you know, she's homely, didn't have really anybody. She's just in kind of a crappy place. And Charlie made her feel beautiful and important, and she didn't want to lose that. So she's like, okay, I guess you can bring other girls here. And she just got used to sharing him. But despite this, she held out hope that Charlie would be hers and only hers one day. By the time summer came around, you know, schools let out, everybody's on summer break, and there were 75,000 new people who came to hate or hate which is, it's a neighborhood, like it's, it's got to be packed at this point. And thus began the summer of love. As Charlie got used to his new home in the hate, he kind of fell into a groove. He wandered the streets, he went around meeting people, and he was refining his philosophy. It was really starting to develop, and he was trying to to kind of fine-tune it. He would sleep at Mary's place and let her pay the rent. He let her cook and clean, and she slept with him whenever he felt like it. He brought other girls out like, this man was having his cake, and he was eating it too. He did a ton of LSD. LSD was Charlie's drug, and he would preach his weird philosophy to whoever would listen. And it, his philosophy was this patchwork of Beatles songs, song lyrics and the Bible and Scientology and Dale Carnegie techniques such as presenting everything in a dramatic manner. And one of his strategies to get people to follow him and listen to what he had to say was to make them feel like whatever he wanted them to do was their idea. And that would follow him through his whole life. That's something he would use all the time. But then it got a little bit weirder because during some of his LSD trips, he started to believe that he and Jesus had quite a bit in common. He would leave the hate every few days to wander up and down the coast, which is something he would do quite a bit during that time. And he would either hitchhike to get around or have somebody that he knew lend him a car. And on one of these trips, it was May 1967, he ended up in Venice. And he just wandered. He wandered up and down the sidewalk. He sat on a bench to people watch and watch the surfers. And on one of the benches, there was this small little redheaded girl and she was crying. So he's like, oh, what's going on here? So he goes over to her and finds out her name's Lynette Frome. She was 18 years old. And she had just left home after another fight with her dad, who was very strict. And during his conversation with her, Charlie learned that Lynette, well, you know, she had a strict dad. And during her teen years, she got into sex and drugs to cope with the tension between her parents. And it got so bad. She was in such a miserable place that she tried to commit suicide two times. There were rumors that she was having an affair with one of her teachers in high school and so this girl's kind of a mess. Charlie's like, oh, she's perfect. This is, this is great. This is great for me. He saw Lynette as an opportunity. 
So he turned up his charm and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, just listening and trying to level with her. And she's telling him her life story. And Charlie, she felt like he was mysterious, but he was also sympathetic. He said all the right things. He told her that fate is what brought them together. And he's like, hey, why don't you come back to hate with me? And she's like, no, I better not. And he's like, okay. And he got up and he turned to walk away. But then she jumped up and ran after him. She's like, oh, he's cool and collected. Yeah, I'll come. I'll come. And so off she went with Charlie home to Mary in her apartment. And the indoctrination started as soon as they got there. And Lynette, also known as Lynn, she grew to think that Charlie was so wonderful and so wise, and she wanted to stay with him forever. And he's like, you can. You can stay with me forever. So she, she's just hearing everything she wants to hear. She is attached to Charlie. And it didn't take long, or much. After a while, Char Charlie, Mary, and Lynette, this little trio, all moved into a new apartment together. And it was further from Mary's job, but it was more convenient for Charlie. And that's what mattered. And so that's what they did. And the girls got along well. And things were going smoothly. But Charlie needed more people. And he had somebody in mind for his next follower. There was one time that he was hitchhiking and he was picked up by a guy named Dean Morehouse. And Dean liked Charlie. And he's like, why don't you come home and meet my family? So he brings Charlie to his house. He meets his wife and he meets his daughter, Ruth Ann. And Ruth Ann's young. She's a teenager, like a young teenager. But she left a big impression on Charlie. And before he left, he, he noticed an old piano in the corner of the house. And he's like, ooh, ooh, I like that. I like that piano. And he said something about it. And Dean's like, take it. It's yours. And he's like, really? Okay. So he, at some point, he came back for the piano. And he's hauling it down the street. He hauled it for a few blocks and then he ended up trading it with one of Dean Morehouse's neighbors for an old VW bus. Don't know the details there. I just know that that's how he got his bus. And this opened up a whole new world for him because now he had not a car, but a bus where he could take like five or six people with him wherever he went. And the very first one to go for a ride with him was Ruth Ann. And they started this whole affair, but her mom caught wind of it and she sicked the police on Charlie. <laughs> She's like, this is not okay. You're a child. He's an adult. What's happening? And so before he left and they were separated, Charlie was like, listen, this is what you need to do, Ruth Ann. Go marry somebody. It doesn't matter who. Go marry anybody because it would legally emancipate her from her parents. So, you know, she's married. She can do whatever she wants, including leaving her husband to go be with Charlie. And little Ruth Ann was like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Charlie, over that whole thing, was given a 30-day suspended sentence, and three extra years were tacked onto his probation. And Ruth Ann did marry a guy named, his name was Edward Wevelhorst, and she just bided her time until Charlie came looking for her. Meanwhile, in the van, Charlie and Mary ripped out all the seats and they added a rug and pillows and curtains to make it more comfy and hippie-y. And then at some point, Charlie, Mary, and Lynn drove down to Manhattan Beach because Charlie wanted to meet up 
with his friend from prison named Billy Green. And while he was there, Billy introduced Charlie to Pat Krenwinkel, who was 19 at the time. And she was plain looking. She was going through a hard time. Her parents had divorced and she I, she moved somewhere south. I want to say it was like Tennessee or something. I could be wrong. But she moved somewhere. And then she ended up moving back to California and in with her older half-sister and nine-year-old nephew. And when she was talking to Charlie, Pat was like, yeah, my sister's a drug addict and my nephew's really, he's incorrigible. He's a bad kid. And so Charlie's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, just listening, taking it all in. He's like, oh, yeah, she's the perfect candidate to join my group. So he did what he always does, and he turned on the charm. And three days later, Pat joined him and his two other girls. And she brought her credit card that her dad paid off every month, which pleased Charlie. Anybody who had money, he was down with until they ran out. Because remember, he only messes around with people or wants people in his life if they have something to offer him. Otherwise, don't bother him. So now they're four, Charlie and his three girls, and they spend a lot of time together traveling up and down the coast in that bus. Mary ended up quitting her job, and to get money, they started panhandling, and it became part of their daily routine. But Charlie was also good at temporarily attracting people with money or credit cards. But as soon as they ran out of money, they're thrown out of the group. And on these trips and in their time together, Charlie would just preach, preach and preach to his three ladies that they needed to surrender their egos and that their biological families didn't care about them and that they needed to become part of a real family. And that's why they were here. And they fell for it. They believed him. Charlie was so charming. He knew how to use his words. But as charming as he was, he could also be abusive. He expected complete devotion from his followers. And if he felt like he wasn't getting it, he would become physically abusive with them. Because in his mind, he was like, okay, there's a fine line between showing love and showing them who's boss. And that was kind of, he walked that line. That was how he lived his life. So it's his goal to get lots of followers, but his number one priority was to get a record deal. And he never forgot about his friend who told him to go see Gary Stromberg in uh, Universal Studios in L.A. So he, you know, he's living in San Francisco now, traveling a lot, but he was like, I got to get back to L.A. But before he went back to L.A., he wanted to get more people to join his group. And this included men, not just women. But he knew that it was harder to get men to join. In his mind and experience, women were just easier because you had all you had to do was find the ones with daddy issues and make them feel beautiful. And so he needed to have a little collection of women to get the men because he knew the best way to get them, the men, was through the women. So he, he's doing the most. He's not skipping any steps. But when he looked at the girls that he did have, he was like, "Mm, they're not very pretty. He's like, I need another girl. I need somebody pretty and ready to put out. And he met that girl in early fall of 1967. He was at a mutual friend's apartment with this girl. Her name was Susan Atkins, and she would end up playing a huge role in everything that went down with the Manson family. 
She was 20 at the time when she met Charlie, and her mom had died of cancer when she was 15, and that put a huge load on her at a very young age. She had to take care of her younger brother. Her dad couldn't hold a job. So while she was in high school, she worked part-time just to help ma- help make ends meet. And to cope with everything, she turned to alcohol and drugs and sex. And just like Lynette, she had attempted suicide at one point. But at the end of the day, what Susan really wanted was just acceptance and attention. So as soon as she turned 18, she left home. She went from Los Angeles, her hometown, to San Francisco. In the years leading up to Charlie, she robbed a gas station with her boyfriend at the time. She went to jail for three months. She got two years probation. And when she was done with jail, after a few months, she started working as a topless dancer. And then in her spare time, she would just wander around the streets of the hate looking for drugs. And then she met Charlie. And he charmed her into joining a quote-unquote real family, talked her into it. And so she did. And around this time, Mary Bruner got pregnant with Charlie's baby. And she was so excited about it. She was like, okay, okay, this is it. I'm going to be his main girl. And of course, that's not what happened. It, I'm sure it did, it did not go the way I'm sure she thought it would. In the following months, there were other women in the group that did get pregnant too. But they didn't know who the fathers were because they were just sleeping with everybody. And Charlie was actually, he liked this. He was pushing the girls to just sleep with whoever and try to get pregnant. He just, he wanted as many people as he could have in his group. At some point, he traded that VW bus for an old yellow school bus. And they did the same thing with that bus. They ripped out all the seats and they put sleeping bags and cushions. And then they painted the outside like with rainbow, swirly rainbow colors. And then in black letters, they wrote Hollywood Productions because they thought it was funny. And they took that thing, the how many, five of them, six of them now? They, five of them. They took that bus all over. They would go on road trips all the time. And on one of these road trips, they met a guy named Bruce Davis. Bruce Davis was a college dropout from Tennessee, and he wanted to join the group. He was he was down with it. So he joins the group. His first male follower is here, Bruce Davis. But Charlie hadn't forgotten about Ruth Ann. After Bruce joined, they went looking for Ruth Ann Morehouse, and they went to her house where her family and parents lived, and her dad, Dean, was, he was pissed to see him. He's like, what are you doing here? And he was so pissed off that he threatened Charlie with a shotgun. He held it to Charlie's head. He wasn't even just having it or pointing it at him. He was holding it to Charlie's head and just raging. And Charlie stayed calm. And he talked Dean down. He's like, man, like, you know, hands up in the air and eyes half open. Peace and love, man. And he, he, I don't know what he said, but he talked Dean down from his rage To the point that he's like, here's some acid, bro. And so Dean's like, oh, thanks. And he did his acid. And then after a while, he was on his way. And Charlie's followers, of which they're, I don't, I'm sure they didn't realize they were followers at that point. But they were. And they were completely in awe of what just happened. Like, they couldn't believe that Charlie had had the power 
to take his rage and turn it into something opposite and then have an acid trip with him. They just thought it was so crazy and Charlie was like king because of this. So when it came time to move to LA, his his group was happy to go with him. It was like the end of 1967 and Charlie's ready to go. He's like, I got to go audition for this Gary Stromberg guy at Universal. I got to pursue my music career. I got to spread my talents. So in November of that year, his parole supervision was transferred from San Francisco to LA. And Charlie and his homies hit the road in their bus. And he was confident that he was about to, to achieve all of his dreams. After they made the move to L.A., Charlie sought out Gary Stromberg. And Phil Kaufman, remember Phil from prison, the music guy? Phil didn't recommend too many people to Gary. And Gary's like, well, you know, if Phil's recommending him, then he must be something. Phil must see something in this guy. And so he felt like Charlie was worth auditioning. So Charlie and his four angels, the girls, I don't know what Bruce was doing, but They went together into Gary's office, and the whole thing was just really weird. Like, Gary was really distracted by the way that these girls stood at Charlie's beck and call, just waiting for him to give them orders. But when it came time for the session, for the audition, it was a disaster. Charlie was demanding, and on top of that, Stromberg didn't see anything special in him. He's like, okay... This is a guy with no talent who's barking orders at me and my crew. This isn't going to work out. What was Phil thinking? So Gary Stromberg let him down easy. He's like, you know what? Why don't you work on your songs a little more? And then maybe we can try this again in the future. And I think Charlie deep down knew that was a letdown, but he was also like, okay. Like he kept his head up and he decided that he was going to do that. But meanwhile, he was going to look for somebody else who was important in the music business, but whoever it was had to understand him and his creativity and his vision. So with that out of the way, their next order of business was to find somewhere to live. They were just kind of living on the bus, squatting. They're just wandering around, which was pretty common at that time. There were a lot of people in LA who wandered around and there were a lot of people in LA who were willing to take wanderers in. So Charlie and his group ended up at a house in Topanga Canyon. The house was known as the Spiral Staircase. And they were there for a while. It was just, it was kind of a quirky place. Lots of weird, eclectic people who would just kind of come and go. And while they were staying there, Charlie met Bobby Beausoleil. And the two of them hit it off immediately. And they became friends, like actual friends. And of course, Charlie's first thought was, oh, he'd make a good addition to this group. And so he gave him the whole spiel and he tried to talk him into it. But Bobby wasn't interested. He's like, I don't follow anybody. I'm not interested. And Charlie's like, okay, they let it go. They started a band for a second, but it only lasted a second. But Bobby met, or I'm sorry, Charlie met a guy named Gary Hinman through Bobby. And Gary played a big role in what happened with this whole thing. But he was a music teacher And so Charlie was like, oh, he might have some industry contacts. He was also a a drug dealer, 
which is great because Charlie's like, okay, yeah, we need a drug dealer. Okay. And he has a nice house. And Charlie's like, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can stay there sometimes. And they did. And so he's making contacts left and right, just using his charm and his Dale Carnegie tactics and just floating around with his, his people. Eventually, they left the spiral staircase and they traveled around for a little bit. They went to Arizona and then New Mexico and Texas, and they're just having fun, just meeting people, just wandering. And when they got back to L.A., Susan found out that she was pregnant. And she's like, I don't know who the dad is. I think it's this guy in L- in Arizona. And so she's pregnant with some random guy and she doesn't even know the dad. Perfect. And I'm sure Charlie was thrilled. And so there's all these babies coming into the group. And the plan for those babies and just the kids of the group in general was that all the members of the group would be equal parents because Charlie's like, we don't need these kids being messed up by one parent. We don't need them picking up their traits and whatever else. So we're all going to be parents. And that's what they did. And for whatever reason, they were fine with it. The kids were kept separate from the main group in either a tent or in a back room and they were watched over by whoever Charlie assigned for that day or night or whatever and parents were not allowed to visit their children without Charlie's permission blows my mind so they're back in LA now right and Charlie meets Diane Lake Diane Lake is 14 years old nobody talks about Charlie Manson being a freaking pedophile Diane was like, oh, this bus is super cool. After talking to Lynn and Pat for a little bit, I mean, they're like recruiting people, right? So they're like, why don't you come with us? Just join us. We go all over the place. And Diane's like, okay, but I got to ask my mom and dad. So she goes and asks her mom and dad and they're like, okay. (laughs) And she joined the group. She's a 14. For the next year, They stayed in Los Angeles, and they're just recruiting people left and right, and they found where they wanted to be. They settled in Topanga Canyon, and they just kind of bounced between places. They would stay with Gary Hinman or the Spiral Staircase. Sometimes, if they had enough money, they would rent places just for like a short period of time. Sometimes, they would just squat somewhere, and they just kept on trying to find new recruits, and... They found another one, a a guy named Paul Watkins, who was 18 years old, and he was a dropout, and he was so into being part of this group. He was determined to become Charlie's second in command. After Paul joined the group, Charlie felt like, okay, I got to go get my girl Ruth Ann. He did not forget about Ruth Ann, and he went and he found her, and just like he promised he would. And just like she promised, she abandoned her husband and came with Charlie to be with him in Topanga. And so Ruth Ann is part of the group now. And there were others who were brought into the group temporarily. It was, like I said earlier, if they had money to offer, mostly. And once that money dried up, they were let go. They are kicked out of the group. And one of those people was Angela Lansbury's own daughter, Dee Dee, Dee Dee Lansbury. She would take her mom's credit cards and pay for stuff for the group. And then Angela found out and she's like, what are you doing? And then it was, you know, Dee Dee was let go. By early 1968, they already had like 20 plus members who were fine with all this madness. 
And these people were encouraged to take on new names. Take a, you know, change them however often you want. Some names were just like forgotten. Nobody even knew what their real names were. They just took on new names because, and identities. Because Charlie was like, free yourself. Don't be, don't conform to society. That's your given name. That's not one you chose. And they're like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. So people in the group would go by new people names. They would go by nicknames. And another thing that Charlie taught his members was that possessions didn't matter because everything was everyone's. But you know, life is life and the world is the world and they still had to find a way to get the necessities. So they made their money doing odd jobs if they had to, panhandling, they would scour grocery store dumpsters for food, anything edible. They would just grab it out of the dumpster. So they And it was like a daily thing. So they would just eat whatever they found. The girls were instructed to flirt with and or seduce the grocery store stock boys to try to get free stuff that way too. So they're just doing whatever they can, except working to get stuff. On a typical day, everyone got up late. The girls would make breakfast. The boys would go work on the cars and motorcycles that the group had acquired over time. And then the girls would go out for another food haul. And then they would do, at night, they would do what Charlie considered their women's work and make dinner. And they were to serve it and clean up, and clean up after. And then after dinner and all the cleaning and all that, they would gather around for a group dose of LSD and Charlie would always take a little less to keep his wits about him because, you know, he needed to preach. He This was church for them. And so while they're all on LSD or whatever they're taking, Charlie would preach his beliefs and just push it as far into their brains as he could. And then group sex was a common activity. And so was listening to Charlie play his guitar and sing. But you already knew that. That same year, 1968, Phil Kaufman got out of jail and he found Charlie and they hung out. He hung out with the group, enjoyed the girls, wink, wink. And Charlie's like, yeah, you can stay around. Do you know anybody else who can help me get my music career going? And he, in fact, Charlie, of course, tried to get Char- tried to get Phil to join the group, but Phil's like, nah, I'm good. So he just stuck around for about five weeks and then Phil Kaufman was on his way. Another tactic that Charlie used to to get his followers to believe everything he was saying was he would use the state of the world to his advantage. Like, during that time, I mean, you know history in the 60s and what was going on then. And L.A. and San Francisco especially were hot spots for riots and protests and just tons of violence. There was just so much going on. And Charlie's like, you guys are so lucky that you're with me and you're safe from all of this. And so, of course, they're like, we love you, Charlie. Thank you. 1968 was also the year that Charlie met Sandy Good. And Sandy Good would become one of his most devoted followers. And Charlie was into it because Sandy got a $200 check every month from her dad. And she was happy to just give it to Charlie. And Charlie, he's bold, man. He contacted Sandy's dad himself several times, asking for at first, asking for, and then eventually demanding more money from him. George was his name. George Good. George is like, no, 
and it got to the point that he's like, I can't, I have to break off communication with my own daughter over this, but he still sent the $200 checks. So Charlie was happy with it. Took what he could get. Right. Charlie also recognized with everything going on and being in LA, it could be distracting. And so he would take his group on road trips in the, in their bus occasionally because it would give him the opportunity to just preach at them with their undivided attention, with no outside influences. Because, you know, he's got to keep them in line. It was on one of these trips that they stumbled upon Spawn Ranch. And Spawn Ranch was owned by an old man named George Spawn. He was almost blind. He was old. The property was an old movie set that was used in the 50s and 60s to film, like, cowboy movies, like westerns. And the group stayed there. Old man Spawn let him stay there for a while. And that kind of became part of their story. I'm her- I'm sure you've heard of Spawn Ranch. So they stayed there for a while and then they went back to Topanga because Charlie was like, well, I, you know, I, I gotta resume my quest for fame. I can't do it on this old movie set. So they went back to Topanga, but you know, they would, that would not be the last time that they stayed at Spawn Ranch. They would, they would go back And the group was big enough now that Charlie had his people doing his bidding. He could just send them out to do what they needed to do to handle, like, the essential day-to-day business. So the girls would go panhandling and foraging for food, and the guys would work on the car. Just whatever needed to be done so that Charlie didn't have to be bothered. So now that everything's being taken care of, Charlie's able to set his sights and all of his energy on finding the right music connection. And he wouldn't do it himself. He always had his people doing his work and he would have the girls wander around the Sunset Strip just to see who they might meet because you just never know, right? And sometime in the late spring of 1968, two of the girls were out on the Strip and they decided that they were going to hitchhike. They stuck their thumbs out and right away there was a good looking guy who stopped and he offered them a ride to wherever they wanted to go. And he's like, but, you know, I'll take you where you want to go, wherever you want to go. But hey, why don't we come back to my place for some milk and cookies? And they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. So they hopped into the car and they sped away with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Stay tuned for the story of Charlie Manson, part three. Until then, take care of yourself and I'll see you next time. 